0: Thank you, Dave. The second song of worship that he was singing is a new song that Phil Wickham is doing. So we will get to know that one. It's uh, getting popular. And I've always enjoyed Phil Wickham. I remember seeing him when he was a wee little lad playing a small little guitar with his brother and I think family back at Calvary Costa Mesa, probably some. I don't know, going back to uh, 93 maybe, playing a mini guitar, and uh, what talent the Lord has given Phil and his brother Evan, Evan pastoring a church in San Diego now, but a musician in his own right. Well, tonight we're looking at Genesis chapters 14 and 15, I titled this Accounted Righteous, pulling the title from the situation that will take place in chapter 15. And I'm just going to say it up front. Here we are in Genesis chapter 14, and we are going to go through this passage that has a number of Bible names and cities that nobody knows today and or, you know, they don't name their kids saying, man, I really like that name for my child. No, they just don't do that. They stay away from these names. Maybe unless you're, well, not even. These, uh, majority of them, not even Jewish names. So just names given to us in scripture about the kings and kingdoms that surrounded the land of Canaan, where Abraham finds himself now, and the trials and situations that go through it. And so um, just kind of giving a disclaimer up front, I'm horrible with reading words that I don't know and my mind like my brain like turns off on me sometimes so if there's a pause it's because my brain is disconnecting as I'm staring at a a word a name I do not know we'll do what we can do and it doesn't help it's like John you should practice reading I do John you should listen to how to pronounce I do it's like my brain disconnects I'm telling you that's how it is um, I've gotten used to it I don't like it but Especially when you come to a chapter like chapter 14 and so we're going to have a a few different names but the key to the chapter is what happens toward the end of the chapter and so I have in the book of Genesis as we've been going through the book of Genesis every chapter I've been giving you a key verse in this chapter I'm giving you three key verses and I'll just read them to you up front before we get into the teaching And then I'll ask God to bless the teaching of his word tonight. The three key verses has to do with the mention of Melchizedek. Genesis 14 verses 18 through 20 tells us, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, referring to Abram, gave him, referring to Melchizedek, a tithe of all. Father, we pray that you would be with us as we go through chapters 14 and 15, both of them very important as far as biblical truth is concerned. We know that, Lord, your word is true, and so every word that you have given to us, there is truth there for us to uphold and us to uh, build our lives upon, but there are some portions of scripture, Lord, that just have greater impact and significance to us. The mentioning of Melchizedek uh, will be repeated in the Psalms. It'll be repeated in the New Testament, this king, Melchizedek, who appears in the pages of Scripture here in Genesis chapter 14 for the very first time. And there is significance to Melchizedek in our Savior Jesus Christ. And then chapter 15, Lord, deals with a covenant that you gave to Abram. You have not yet called his name Abraham, but at this point, Lord, you have made a covenant to give him the land of Canaan, the promised land and also to give him an heir and that his descendants as we'll learn tonight will be as the stars of the sky so lord these two chapters are though i may struggle reading some of the names and some of the countries mentioned here or regions or territories lord what they teach are very impactful significant and important lord to us as christians and to the Jewish people today. And so we thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask that you'd bless the teaching of your word this night. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We learned last week that Abraham gave Lot a choice of where he would like to live. And the Bible tells us in chapter 13 that the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot were Contending against one another because they both had very large flocks and herds. So the oxen, the cattle, the lambs, the goats, the donkeys, mules, camels, we can go through it all. They had a lot and the land couldn't support them together. So Abram and his nephew Lot needed to separate. And Abram, being the gracious man that he was, allowed Lot to choose the course, the direction that he would like to take his family. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 13.10 that Lot chose all the plain of the Jordan Valley because it was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. I'd mentioned this last week, but with Abram going down to Egypt, he got in trouble because he lied. He caused Sarai, his wife, to lie to the king, to the pharaoh there. God got Abram out of that situation and even got Abram and his family out of Egypt, richer, better off as far as finances perhaps are concerned, better off than they were before they went down to Egypt. But although Abram got out of Egypt, Egypt never got out of Lot. And when Lot looked over the land there in the Jordan Valley, it reminded him of the land of Egypt and so he chose to pitch his tent there. Genesis 13, 12 tells us he pitched his tent as far as Sodom. And it appears that Lot began by camping outside the city walls of Sodom. But by the time we get to chapter 14, where we're at tonight, we find that he is captured while dwelling in Sodom. Lot has made his choice based on his eyes, based on, on what he could see and yet in his choice he is progressing further away from the Lord God who had founded him. Psalm 69:22 tells us let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. So for Lot and his family their table was set and it would become a, a trap that resulted from nine kings who divided into two armies. We're going to learn about them in a moment. And they battled until one side was victorious. Lot found himself caught up. What he did not know as he looked out over that beautiful land is that land was in the midst of war. And it came to pass, Genesis 14, 1 through 4, and it came to pass in the days of Amphrael, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar, and Ketolomir, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations. I like that one. I can say it. Tidal, king of nations. Easy one. That they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Sinab, king of Adama, Shemeber, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, all these joined together in the Valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. And so we have an idea of the direction we're going here. Twelve years they served Kedor Laomir. I was saying that so much better this afternoon. And he's the name that I have to repeat over and over again. This is horrible. Kedor Laomir. In the thirteenth year they rebelled. So it's twelve years earlier. And we don't know where Lot fell into this timeline. I'm kind of envisioning that he entered in to Sodom when Sodom was actually in servitude to these kings that had been victorious over them. They had them in servitude for 12 years. And I kind of envision that Lot kind of found himself somewhere in the middle or toward the end of that 12 year time of servitude. In the 13th year, these kings. Five kings decided to rebel against the four kings that had been victorious over them. And so for 12 years, their people had been in servitude to these kings. It would mean that they would have to pay tributes to these kings, perhaps providing provision from the land itself, the food, the crop, and a form of taxes that we would find today. And they got tired of it in the 13th year. The five kings rebelled against the four more powerful kings. And we discover that they truly were more powerful as we learn in verses five through seven. For in the 14th year, Kedor Laomir and the kings that were with him came in and attacked the Rephilim. And in Asherod, Karnaim, Naim and Zuzim in Ham, and Imim, in Shav-Kera. <laughs> I hate these things. <laughs> Lord, why do you do this to me? Anyways, there's some horrible places in here. The Hortites were in their mountains of uh, Seir, as far as El Paran, and that is by the wilderness. And they turned back and came to In-Mishpat, that is Kadish, and they attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites, who dwelt with Hazizan and Hazizan Tamar. And so that's the best I can do in that area. I do want to point out a couple of things in this area, though. These four kings that they had rebelled against not only proven victorious over the five kings, including the kings of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, but they gained more territory. And in the gaining of more territory, they were going up against the giants, the Rephaim mentioned there in verse 5, and also the Emim mentioned as well. These are both words for giants in Scripture. So they were battling the giants in the 14th year, these four more powerful kings. But the five kings decided, and I, I kind of just envisioned that the four kings went to gain more territory, And so the five kings that included Sodom and Gomorrah, they decided this is a great time for us to rebel because they're off warring somewhere else. So we can strengthen, we can break away. And then when they come back, they might be defeated. It might be a non-issue. That didn't work out for them that way. But their thoughts might be that they might get, they're battling the giants. They might get defeated by the giants. We won't have to go and be servitude unto them any longer. The Lord Jesus talked about kings making war in Luke 14:31 through 32, saying, what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else while they are still a great way off, he sends a delegations and he asks conditions of peace. And so no doubt they had considered breaking away from this. They're being conquered by these four kings, the servitude that they were under. No doubt these five kings considered the odds. They felt it was time. And I find it interesting that the Rephaim, the Emim are mentioned there. Rephaim is the Hebrew word for giant. The Moabites used the word imim to describe giants. We learned that in Deuteronomy 2.11, where it talks about the giants that were in the land, like the Anakim, and the Moabites called them the imim. And so we discovered that this territory was a tough and hard territory because some 430 years later, and we'll get the 400-year mark in chapter 15, But 430 years later, in the time of Moses, when the Israelites refused to go into the promised land, it was because they feared the descendants of these giants, the giants that had now been referred to in this passage. In Numbers 13.33, you know this portion of scripture where the spies went into the land and 10 of the spies came out and they reported to the people, Numbers 13.33, there we saw giants the descendants of Anak came from the giants and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight and so we were in their sight and so these giants these men of renown here we find that they were being fought here in Genesis chapter 14 we'll read about these the descendants of these men of renown these giants that even scared the Israelites, prevented them from going into the promised land initially some 430 years later. So this was a big deal. And the five kings must have put great confidence considering that they were preparing to rage war against kings who had successfully warred against the land of the giants. It would be something to consider. Verses 8 through 12. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zorah. They went out and they joined together and battled in the valley of Siddim against Catalomir, the king of Elam, titled king of nations, Am-Raphael, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits and the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there and the remainder fled into the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provision and they went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom. Notice he dwells in Sodom now. His goods and departed. Although Lot saw Sodom as a beautiful land, the Bible reveals that this place, and we'll discover this as we continue in the book of Genesis, that Sodom was exceedingly wicked and sinful. Clearly, Sodom was in the midst of a great physical, the physical warfare going on. I think that Lot walked right into, he didn't know this was going on perhaps, but also spiritual warfare warfare was taking place in this city. It reminds me of the old adage that says, Looks can be deceiving. What did we read of Lot in Genesis ten thirteen? And all the plain of the Jordan Valley he took it because it looked like the Garden of the Lord in the land of Egypt. This area by Sodom reminded Lot of the Garden of the Lord, but looks can be deceiving second timothy 3 verses 1 through 5 it says but know this that in the last days perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves lovers of money boasters proud blasphemers disobedient to parents unthankful unholy unloving unforgiving slanderers, without self-control brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. So he walked into the place that was in the middle of physical warfare, but there was also spiritual warfare going on in Sodom at this time, and Lot should have known better. Lot should have turned around. He should have went a different way. But he not only camped outside of Sodom, but when he was captured, he was in the city of Sodom. He made Sodom his home. But a blessed rescue mission takes place. In verses 13 through 16, we read, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time the word Hebrew is found in Scripture. So the first use here in Genesis 14:13, Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terabith trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and the brother of Anir. And they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan, so way north in the land of Israel. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So now we're going, he's pursued them as far as Dan, which if you look at the map of the nation of Israel, it is, I have to physically put it in my mind, but... It's to the northwest, Dan, the tribe of Dan, settled in the northwest. Damascus is outside the nation of Israel northeast. So if you go far to the northeast of Israel, and you can see the lights of Damascus at night if it's a clear night. So they're close enough, but they're going from west to east in this battle. And so he divided his forces against them, attacked them by night, his servants attacked them, pursued them uh, north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. So as I mentioned, the first time the word Hebrew is found in scripture, they're in verse 13. So there's a first. It's always good to kind of get some of these first out of the way. And the book of Genesis is a book of firsts. We learn a lot about the Bible from the book of Genesis as it's setting up a lot that will take place beyond the pages of the book of Genesis. So Hebrew Hebrews itself, they believe that possibly this word could mean a person from beyond the Euphrates River. Remember at 75 years old, the Lord called Abram from the land of ur of the chaldeans so over where babylon area is around the euphrates river so the hebrew possibly could mean one who is from beyond the euphrates river abraham became known as a hebrew here in genesis 14 13 and it's believed traditionally by the jews to trace back the root of this word to one of the sons of Shem, the son of Eber. And so Eber, who is a Shemite, a descendant of Shem, one of the sons of Noah. And they believe that with the son Eber, that it has the same form in the Jewish lettering that is found in Hebrew as well. And so just a little bit of the history behind this word. To know the Jews, the Hebrews, we'll find that term used over and over again in Scripture from this point forward. The Bible tells us in Genesis 13, 2 that Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and gold. But here we find that his wealth was greater than just having silver or gold or having a big bank account. It said that when he went out after Lot, he had 318 Trained soldiers that were birthed in his own household. And so, can you imagine any kind of uh, business today that has security? We have 318 trained security in our business, and we brought them up from kids. We've trained them, you know, kindergarten, they were in security school. They've been raised up for our business to protect this place protect our people protect our herds our crops and so imagine 318 trained men I think when men go to war I think the odds are that for every one man who goes to battle for um, Rome I believe that there were two men who was supporting so if you had one Roman soldier fighting there were two behind the scenes bringing up the rear bringing food provisions, support force And you would have to assume a similar thing, 318 soldiers. But we also had forces that were strengthened from Mamre, Eshcol, and Anir, the Amorites, who went with him as well. And the Lord was gracious to Abram, and he and his small army of men routed the enemy. In verse 16, it tells us that they brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people this happens in our world and the bible uh, solomon in ecclesiastes 3 8 said there is a time to love and a time to hate a time of war and a time of peace and abram found himself in a time of war and discovered that through the battle he would meet the prince of peace it's pretty cool it reminded me as I was mentioned of the Hebrew and remember trying to figure out exactly what the word Hebrew means. Uh, one of the Bible commentators said that they believe that it may have referred to a person that came from beyond the Euphrates River. And here in our own church, we had a man who was going to school at Moody Bible Institute, getting his master's degree. And he entered here at our church for Only, uh, I believe his internship had to be six weeks. They stayed, were so glad and blessed. They stayed for almost two years until the Lord moved them on. But Cole and Pamela Yotes, Cole um, and Pamela, they'll tell their own story. But their marriage was in danger of divorce. In fact, Pamela had said that she was ready when Cole returned from Iraq, ready to tell him, right there at the airport that's it we're done but prior to cole returning from iraq while he was laying on the banks of the euphrates river he cried out to god and said god if you're real show yourself to me he said i didn't even know anything about anything and the next morning i woke up different." and he found a friend that happened to attend the calvary chapel and there was the calvary chapel connection his friend told him go to the commentary and by any christian cd you can he said there was two jeremy camp another calvary chapel connection and michael w smith so he had his two christian music that he would listen to and pamela when she tells her side of it she said i was ready to tell him we're done and when he came back i couldn't something changed and she had seen that something had changed in him so war can bring about an interaction with the king of peace and that's what we find with Abram he went to war there was a time of war it was necessary to go defend his family that had been taken captive but when he returned the bible tells us in genesis 14:17 and the king of sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shevev, that is in the king's valley after his return from the defeat of Kedolomir and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him, Abram giving to Melchizedek he gave him a tithe of all and now the king of Sodom said to Abram in verse 21 give me the persons and take the goods for yourself but Abram said to the king of Sodom I have raised up my hand to the Lord God most high the possessor of heaven and earth that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap that I will not take anything that is yours lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Anir, and Imamri, let them take their portion. So first, let's just get the king of Sodom out of the way because we really want to look at Melchizedek. So verses 17 and also 21 through 24, we find the king of Sodom, Having escaped death himself and captivity, he came to meet Abram as he came back with the people and all their possessions. And he only asked this king, seemed to be an honorable thing, saying, just give me my people and you can keep the rest. He was willing to give Abram the spoils of war. In fact, it was rightfully Abram's, according to how they conducted war in those days. Yet Abram refused because he said, and he gave testimony. Remember, we have learned already about Abram since he had entered into Canaan, chapters 12 and 13, that he was an altar builder and that he was a worshiper of the God Most High. Although he was a stranger in the land of Canaan, he worshipped God openly before the people there. And now he gives testimony concerning God, saying, I have raised my hand. I have pledged to God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. He's giving testimony that it is God. Remember, in their time, they believed in local deities, that pagan gods only controlled certain areas. But here, Abram testifies that God Most High is the possessor of both heaven and earth. And he said, I have raised my hand to the Lord. It's kind of one of those prayers where you say, Lord, if you get me through this, if you make me victorious, then I pledge. And this was Abram's pledge. I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Abram had made a pledge to God that he now kept in the sight of the kings and their people. Abram was wise to trust the Lord and to not put his trust in the riches of men. Hebrews 13:5 and 6 tells us, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things that you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Nevertheless, Abram made allowances. He said, Except for the food that my men had eaten, also for his friends that had came with him. No doubt his friends Mamre and Eshcol and Anir also had a force that allied with Abram and his 318 trained men he said give them their spoils give them what belongs to them but as for me I will not take a thread to a sandal strap it was rightfully Abrams the Bible tells us all the way in first Timothy 5 18 you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain the labor is worthy of his wages but Abram had something higher that he wanted to show those in his community and the people of his day. He had a higher lesson in mind, not about gaining wealth. Abram was already. We already learned he was a wealthy man. And it could be even wealthy people can get financially in trouble at times. When I was on the board of love in the name of Christ for thirteen years and was part of that ministry, the mission of love in the name of Christ is to initially it was formed to help churches help church people within the churches that were in need. Uh, it was formed initially in Michigan area, but I think there's 138 plus love inks uh, throughout the world today. But in our area, largely we found that we were helping those who had uh Financial need, those who are on low income, perhaps being supplied by the governments and many ministries that we had reaching out to those who had great need in the Lake County area. In the state of Illinois, one of the statistics I remember from Love, Inc., Lake County is the second richest county in the state of Illinois, and we have one of the greatest areas of poverty as well. And so we have this contrast between the wealthy and the very poor. So we find that when I was in love in the name of Christ, when in 2007 and 8 we went through a recession, someone called and uh, he was asking for help to pay his house payment. And as they went through that process, and Love, Inc. was not about giving money. That's not what they did. But they did... Um, refer them to some churches in the loving community were about that and so they would kind of do an intake learn about the person make sure it was a legitimate need and then if they felt that it was a case that could be referred to another church they would refer that case to another church one of their partner churches and we discovered that this man had had need he goes yeah I live out in Barrington and I have two houses and I just can't make my my payments now. And we're thinking, well, dump a house, you know. You have two houses, but even the rich can get in trouble. Abraham had 318 trained soldiers that were raised up in his own household. And we don't know financially where he was at at this time, but he chose to trust in the living God who had proved himself to Abraham even before this season but now especially in the time of battle, in the time of war. So that was his stand with the king of Sodom. Sodom saw a righteous man. And then we drop back to verses 18 and 20, Melchizedek. Many believe that this Melchizedek is actually Jesus. This is called a Christophany. Christophany simply is a pre-Bethlehem appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ found in the Old Testament. So before Jesus came, was birthed by Mary, uh, the virgin birth and all that we read about in the Gospels, we find every once in a while the angel of the Lord and sometimes we find Jesus Christ himself um, in Scripture like Melchizedek. There's some interesting things about Melchizedek. His name only appears in a few places in Scripture. He is called the king of Salem. Salem means peace. So not only the king of Salem, but the king of peace. He is the priest of the most high God. And so he's king and he's priest. He holds two offices. The nation of Israel were accustomed to the office of the kings and the office of the priests. They were separate and God intended it to be so. But Melchizedek held both offices, both king and priest of the Most High God. So King of Salem, King of Peace, and the priest of the Most High God. He presented to Abram bread and wine. What do we do on the first Sunday each month? We have communion. What does that represent? The bread and wine. He came to Abram with bread and wine. A picture that the Lord Jesus Christ would use many thousands of years later to symbolize his body and his blood we might say that Melchizedek and Abram had communion together at this time and Jesus we find in scripture also carries the titles of both king and priest and it is through communion that we remember his death until he comes through the bread and wine we also find this king priest of God Melchizedek he blesses Abram By letting him know that God was the one who delivered him from the hand of his enemy. He said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek, let Abram know God did this. Sometimes we need to know those God moments where God works in our lives. God, this was you. We need to know that it is Jesus Christ who delivers according to the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both king and priest. He delivers past, present and future. Second Corinthians one verses nine and ten tells us, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves. But in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death who does deliver us, in whom we trust, he will still deliver us. God, the deliverer from past, present, and future. Finally, we see that Abram gave Melchizedek a tithe of all. This token of worship, a devotion to God, given to the priest of God, the priest of God Most High. Speaking of the coming Messiah, the psalmist David wrote, In Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. His name found again in scripture. We have to go all the way to Psalms until it's found again. Psalm 110, verse 4, and prophesying about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, that you are a priest forever forever. According to the order of Melchizedek, Jesus was not of the line of the tribe of Levi, the priestly line of Israel, but he was of the line of Judah. But according to scripture, he was of the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews also wrote of Melchizedek in Hebrews 5, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Melchizedek is introduced to us as being without a father, without a mother, without descendant. We don't have any recorded history of him. He just appears on the pages of Scripture. And that history was important to the Arianic priesthood. It is an old tradition among the Jews that he was Shem. We can't know this, but this is what the Jews believe. That Melchizedek was actually Noah's son, Shem. Who had survived to this time but melchizedek was a worshiper of the true god this we do know he was the king of salem the king of peace and the priest of the lord god most high hebrews 7:15 7, and 17 says it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of the fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The question remains for each of us, and I, I know the answer that I have. Have you allowed Jesus to become both the king and priest of your life? we get in chapter 15, another big chapter in the book of Genesis. Here we have accounted righteous. I titled this, I could have titled it A Covenant from the Lord. But a key verse, Genesis 15:6, you can underline it if you'd like. Like Pastor Mike McIntosh would say, grab your neighbor's Bible and underline it for him as well. But Genesis 15:6. And he believed in the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So it tells us in verse 1: After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your exceedingly great reward. I find it interesting that the Lord began with these words: Don't be afraid. I'm your shield. Why would the Lord have to say that? It could be. After his battle against the four kings that he began to think about what had taken place. And perhaps in his mind he was thinking, they're going to want to come after me. They're going to want revenge. I'm going to suddenly face these four kings once again. And it's not going to go well for me. And yet the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. And I am your exceedingly great reward. It could be also, I was thinking about that this morning, that perhaps after Abram made that great statement before the king of Sodom saying, I swore to the Lord God, not a thread or a strap of a sandal, nothing. And then after a while, he might have been thinking, that was a foolish thing to do. There was a lot of wealth there. I could have used that. We could have dug some more wells or done a lot of things with that sometimes if you ever made those decisions you made it and you took your stand you made a commitment and then after a while you begin to think I wonder if that was the best thing to do I know I give testimony to people and I know but man I could really use that now well I believe when we take stands for the Lord It's always good to stand firm in our commitments, even when it hurts. And the Bible teaches us that. In Psalm 15, 4, it says, He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Talking about a person who, he gets into a commitment, it ends up costing him, yet he doesn't back out of it. He keeps his word. He does not change. This refers to those times when we commit ourselves to something, but after making the commitment, we begin to count the cost but we must stand firm. The commitment that we made. Again, the Lord said in Matthew 5.33, again, I, you have heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. So the Lord came to Abram and said, I'm your shield. Don't worry about those four kings. I'm your shield. I'm your exceedingly great reward. Don't worry about the wealth of Sodom. I'll provide for you, verses 2 and 3. But Abram said, Lord God. And so this Lord God in the King James and New King James Bible, when they capitalize all the letters of Lord or all the letters of God, it tells us a couple of things. So, And I checked it out in the Hebrew to make sure as well. So I noticed that it said, Lord God, Lord with a capital L and lowercase O-R-D, and then God, all caps. So that is Adonai Yahweh. Abraham said, Adonai Yahweh, Lord God. What will you give me, seeing that I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So Abraham was nearly 85 years old at this time. And although he was a wealthy man, he had no heir of his own. Thus Abraham tells his concern to the Lord. I don't know, maybe Abraham was complaining a little bit to the Lord. What do you give me, Lord? I have no heir. And the guy who's going to inherit all the wealth that you've given me already, he was born in my household. It's Eliezer from Damascus. But I also looked at this. Maybe there's a slight bit of complaining here, but there's also casting his cares upon the Lord. The Bible tells us in Psalm 55:22, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous ones to be moved. Sometimes we might go to the Lord with some complaining prayers. But I hope in the process of that, that we are truly in our hearts, heart of hearts, casting our cares upon the Lord. We are to stand on the promises of God even when it seems that his promises toward us are not being fulfilled. For God always has the eternal perspective in mind. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter 3.9 that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises toward us as some count slackness but is long-suffering toward us not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. The Lord isn't slack concerning his promises but he always has the eternal perspective in mind the Lord responds to Abram verses four through six and the word of the Lord the word of Yahweh came to Abram saying this one shall not be your heir but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir then he brought him outside and said look now toward the heaven count the stars if you are able to number them so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, he accounted it to him for righteousness. He believed the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. One of the disadvantages of living, uh, actually between Chicago and Milwaukee, Kenosha, Racine, big cities in themselves, um, we don't get good darkness around here. My daughter... Melissa was telling me as they went down to take McKenzie to Missouri, our granddaughter, spending four months with Travis and Allegra Lee as they have the Travis Lee band and McKenzie going to be a nanny for them. Well, Melissa says she got up in the night while they were there last Saturday evening. and She said it was so dark I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. That really doesn't happen around here. We have light pollution everywhere. So it also means when we look in the skies, we see stars, but we don't see the stars that we could see if we could get away from the light pollution, that which what Abram would have seen. I looked this up, how many stars is considered to be seen by the visible eye. If we're able to count the stars, it's estimated some have set up to about 10 to 12,000 stars can be counted with the human eye. Some have said it's more like 5,000, but 12, 10, or 5,000, that's a lot of stars. Now, the estimate of the stars in the galaxy of the Milky Way itself, right now they believe that there are 100 billion stars in the Milky Way on the lower end and some 400 billion on the high end. And so they're giving it some 500 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So whether 10,000 or 500 billion, the important thing in this is verse six: Abram believed the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In other words, God put righteousness on Abram's accounts. James 2:23 repeated this passage saying the scripture was fulfilled which says Abram believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God scripture was fulfilled Abram believed God all he had to do is believe God verse 7 through 11 it says then he said to him I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it and he said Lord God So Adonai Yahweh, Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, how shall I know that I will inherit it? I found it interesting that God said, your heir, your descendant, he's going to come from your own body. And the Bible said, Abram believed the Lord and it accounted to him for righteousness. And now Abram's saying, but how can I know that I'm going to inherit this land? Or my descendants were inherit this land. He believed God for a child, but not for the territory. Sometimes we're like that. We we take a step of faith in one area, but not in another area. He said, "How shall I know that I will inherit it?" And so God said to him, "Bring to me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon." And then Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two. Down the middle, place each piece opposite each other. He did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So the chapter closes by the Lord, not only promising Abram a son, but reiterating his earlier promise that he would inherit the land, his descendants would inherit the land. And Abram had asked, he said, how do I know that I will inherit it? And so he had him, Set up this sacrifice, a covenant, a binding contract that normally those who would form such a bond in those days, they would walk between the sacrifices, but that's not what will take place here. God had Abram prepare it, but then we learn that God had Abram go to sleep. Now, when the sun was going down, verse 12, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, horror, And great darkness fell upon him. Verses 13 through 16. And Then he went and said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they will serve, I will judge. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So talking about Israel's time in Egypt. And they're coming out of Egypt with great possessions. Now, as it for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I I find that verse, verse 16, amazing. God said, I have a plan for you and your descendants of this land. But right now, the Amorites... Possess this land. And right now, their iniquity is not yet complete. God gave the Amorites 400 years. And to me, it's 400 years a time of repentance. They did not come to repentance. God knew they would not repent. So God, in His mercy, though, gave them 400 years. And 400 years later, 430 years to the day, the day that Jacob went into Egypt. His descendants came out 430 years to the day and possessed the promised land just as God had promised. So I want to point out to you the Hebrew word translated as, in verse 13, your descendants, that Hebrew word is Zerah, and it means seed, and it's singular, not plural. Plural contextually we know that they're talking about the offspring of Abram his descendants would inherit the land but God chose to use a singular form of this word your seed and we're going to come across this again here with Abram but Paul made the point of this in his day in Galatians 3 16 through 18 saying now to Abram and his seed singular were the promises made He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, to your seed, who is Christ. Paul looked upon this, and though it, in the short term, did talk about the children of Israel that would descend from the loins of Abram, in the long term, Paul looked at this and said, God was talking about Jesus. He said, your seed, singular." verse 17 Galatians 3:17. and this I say that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ and that it should make the promise of no effect for if the inheritance is of the law it is no longer of the promise but God gave it to Abraham by promise this covenant came to Abraham by promise this covenant talked about the seed singular paul connected this seed to jesus christ himself 17 through 21 we finish out the chapter and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces on the same day the lord made a covenant with abram saying to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Ketamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergashites, and the Jebusites. So he names 10 different people, And he said, I'm going to give this land to your descendants, the nations that came from 10 different people. In fact, we think about the promised land. We often think about Israel today, where they're restricted to that narrow strip. But God said, no, from Egypt to Euphrates, the promised land is much larger than what we see the state of Israel today. God gave them much of the Middle East. God named these 10 nations who were in the land that Abram's descendants would occupy. And the way that this would take place, Exodus 23:23, God would tell the nation of Israel, my angel will go before you and bring you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. The Lord was with him. My angel will go with you. And finally, Paul wrote about Genesis fifteen six. We already saw that, relating it to the same faith that we can have. Where in Genesis fifteen six it says Abram believed God and he accounted it to him for righteousness. God accounted it to Abram for righteousness. This is the same faith that we can have when we believe in Jesus Christ. In Romans four, twenty-two through twenty-five, Paul wrote, Therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone, but it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses, who was raised up for our justification. This same Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God. The same type of faith, this belief, where God accounted it to Abraham for righteousness, Paul said this same type of faith can be accounted to us for righteousness when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. On Wednesday evenings, we have been running through the ABCs of salvation. One way that you give your heart to Jesus It's the necessity, the ABCs of salvation. The A meaning admit, admit to God that you are a sinner and ask for His forgiveness. The Bible tells us in Romans 3:23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the condition of mankind today. But the Bible also tells us in 1 John 1:9 that if we confess our sins, He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to admit to God that we are sinners. We also need to believe. Believe in the work that Jesus did upon the cross. Jesus, the king and priest, coming from the line of Melchizedek, we met him tonight in Genesis 14. Jesus, who died For our sins was buried, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, making salvation available for us. According to Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have to believe in the work of Jesus Christ. And the C is confess. Not only confess your faith in Jesus, but confess that faith before others that they may know our risen Savior. Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10:13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Tonight, maybe you are one of those whoever who have not yet called upon the name of the Lord but you desire salvation. Maybe tonight you feel like that soldier who found himself a Marine laying on the banks of the Euphrates River, his life a mess and in shambles, and he cried out to the Lord saying, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. Perhaps that's you tonight. and That's the cry that you want to make to the Lord. Maybe you're not on the bank of the Euphrates River, but maybe... You're sitting in your house or driving in a car or sitting in this church. The Lord is able and willing to reach those who cry out to him in life-saving faith. If you have questions regarding faith, if you're listening on the radio or watching through social media or maybe listening to this message at a later time, please email us at cclv at comcast dot net we'd love to correspond with you cclv at comcast this coming Sunday we get to Revelation chapter 7 one-third of the way through the book of Revelation and I titled this 144,000 and a great multitude and so it's divided in two parts we're going to talk about the real 144,000 not those who you know Those who think they're part of the 144,000 today, of course, they're not part of that because that number's already filled, according to the Jehovah's Witness. They can't be part of that number because they've already claimed that they filled up the 144,000, but they can't even go door to door. They started uh, making phone calls last year during COVID. That was interesting. Trying to get their numbers in works for salvation. That's what you got to do. We're going to talk about the real 144,000, and then a great multitude, the Israelis and the Gentiles, presented to us in Revelation chapter 7. Look forward to being with you this coming Sunday at 10 a.m. here at the church, on the air through WLGS, and through our social media page as well. Pray for our radio ministry, I'd appreciate that. Um, We are got to start streaming through the internet um, I tried to activate I told Lily I th- said I think I can do this and I spent much of the morning yesterday just failing but we'll, we got techie guys around here who can help me with that but I did everything that they said I should do and we should be streaming online right now but it didn't work so we're getting closer we have the technology it's just I don't have the <laughs> I don't have it but we'll figure it out Let's go ahead and stand, and we'll close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the these two chapters in the Bible. Normally, Lord, I finish studying before lunch, going over scripture through the week, and then knowing how my schedule is arranged. I usually have these knocked out before lunch. But I so enjoyed being in these two chapters today that it was nearly 3 o'clock before I finished my study today, and that's fine, Lord. Genesis 14 and 15 are so important to the Christian church today. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to gain much fruit from these chapters. I pray for those, Lord, who who need to hear you. Lord, maybe they're like Abram tonight. They've heard a word from you, and they believe you like You said to Abram, I'm going to give you a son. He's going to come from your own loins. And Abram believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And yet, Lord, when you said, I'm going to give your descendants all this land, Abram said, how do I know? And so, Lord, he had one side where he was a man of great faith, and then in the very next section, he was wondering, Lord, how are you going to do this? I believe, Lord, we fit that perfectly often. Lord, there's times when we stand in great faith, and other times, Lord, we're thinking, Lord, how in the world are you going to do this one? I don't get it. So maybe tonight, Lord, there's someone in one of those, how in the world, Lord, and they're praying to you, they're asking, they're casting their cares upon you. I thank you, Lord, that the scripture tells us to cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. So let them cast their cares upon you. We thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers. May it be, Lord, that we have given our lives to the King and Priest, our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might have everlasting communion with you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace.